Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. Here we are at midweek already. Hope you are safe and well. Glad you've joined us. Today we'll be taking a look at our pork exports to Vietnam. They are strong. What's going on with that market? We'll get the latest from uh, the economist with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. We'll also talk with an economist with Kearns & Associates, Steve Meyer. He'll give us an update on the pork packing plant situation. We're getting more positive COVID cases in some of these plants. What does that mean as far as their capacity of their production and and what's that meaning for the pork industry? We'll get the latest on that. And we're going to get some crop updates. Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat, will give us a look at the Kansas wheat crop. And Cy Prettyman, Ohio farmer, will give us a look at the planting and crop progress uh, conditions there north of Columbus, Ohio. So all that coming up on today's program. But we're going to start things off. Always look forward to our visits with Charlie Arnott, CEO with the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, welcome back to the program. You know, I was just thinking it's amazing how news cycles go, and they can change fairly quickly today, the way our media is and the way things evolve. But COVID-19 dominated the news cycle for weeks and months. And then now all of a sudden, because of current events, it's really pushed to the back burner, and we, we're not hearing hardly uh, nearly as much about it as we were, certainly. But that doesn't mean the impacts of it aren't still being felt, there are, and that there are still concerns out there, of course, for COVID-19. But the media focus and attention has certainly shifted. It has, Mike, and you raise a great point that uh, the, the crises that we've seen over the last several weeks and uh, the level of civil unrest is at a level that it has drawn almost all of the media attention away from, from COVID-19. Uh, but you're also exactly right. The, the attention to this is not waning. It's not going away. There will continue to be concerns raised and, and perhaps policy recommendations for what should the food system do, what should agriculture do, uh, coming out of COVID-19, and should the just-in-time system that we've developed be modified in some way as a result of some of the uh, shortages that we saw, the backlogs that we saw, and the on-farm euthanasia depopulation that we've seen as a result of COVID-19. So while it may not, may not be the above-the-fold headline today, uh, it is certainly not going away, and we know that we'll continue to see hot spots. Some of them will be in packing plants and other places. As you mentioned, Steve Meyer will be on to speak about that. Uh, but we'll continue to see an impact of COVID-19, particularly in the meat sector, as uh, as we continue to see this uh, disease and, and virus play its way through. One of the things, looking back on what we've just come through the last few weeks, that really stood out to me was this story of, and the images of people hungry and producers, dairy, pork, beef, whatever it may be, with surpluses or not able to move their product, uh, backups with their animals or milk and having to destroy animals or dump milk. And those two contrasting images really stood out. And for consumers who did not understand before the food supply chain, this has been a, a real eye-opening uh, event as far as learning about how the food gets from a farm to a grocery store or to their their homes, to their plates. And I think uh, I, I know you've done some research on this. I think it's interesting what consumers are saying and learning from this experience. It absolutely is. Uh, there's a desire now for 
shorter food miles, greater security, greater concern about what I'm going to be able to feed my family. But to your earlier point, there's just no appreciation for the size and the complexity of agriculture and particularly our meat system today. Uh, every single state raises cattle. We've got about 728,000 farms and ranches raising 32 million head of cattle and calves every year. 25,000 family farms produce 9 billion chickens a year, and we've got 60,000 farmers raising about 115 million pigs every year. So the fact that we're raising animals across that geography at that scale and being able to operate all of these systems all seamlessly and without notice is, is truly an amazing thing. And so now that that's been disrupted, it's drawn attention to what is taking place and raising questions about what is and what should be happening going forward. Um, you know, we've got 830 plus inspected livestock plants for beef and pork, 3,000 plants for poultry, and the system can adjust when one closes or another one closes. You know, when there's a fire, it can create some market disruption, but animals can be moved uh, uh, accordingly. But boy, when you see something like COVID sweep through where you've got some pretty significant plant shutdowns, there's simply nowhere for the animals left to go. Um, it's on a daily basis. We harvest about 500,000 pigs and 24 million chickens every single day. So people don't understand that, that all of our, the, the farms today and the, and the plants today are designed to operate just in time. So when you send a load of pigs to market, when you send a load of chickens to market, uh, to the processing plant, there's another group right behind them coming into that facility to be grown and to be raised to, to market weight. So if you have to stop that group, that means the entire system begins to back up. And the heartbreaking reality, uh, the, the, the unspeakable reality, is that farmers are put in the really incredibly difficult position of having to say, okay, in the best interest of my animals, I can't continue to crowd them. I can't continue to force them to be in this space. I have to depopulate and euthanize them humanely because it's in the animal's best interest. So that, as you mentioned, that, that image of farmers depopulating and having to go through that while stores are left short creates this public conversation that we're trying to address by putting out this infographic on best food facts with support from Iowa and Illinois Farm Bureau that really explains the journey of beef, pork, and chicken from the farm to your plate. Yeah, I think it's a real educational experience, a learning experience for all of us, really. Uh, but now where do we go from here? You mentioned people talking about uh, reducing food miles, the local food movement, which was which was really cranking up before this hit, but I think will be even stronger now. But in some cases, that isn't going to be practical or always work, probably. Uh, I don't doesn't seem like there'll be a complete overturn of the food supply system and chain that we have now. But I would think some modification and some tweaks will be coming. I think you're right. I think we're likely to see some modification. I don't know exactly what those are, but we've got the really interesting kind of dichotomy here where now Feeding America is the 13th largest retailer in the country uh, with the dramatic spike we've seen in unemployment and other people looking for food assistance. You've got a hunger agency now, the 13th largest retailer. And so I think there is going to be a concern about dismantling the kinds of systems that have allowed us to enjoy the most affordable food anywhere on the planet. 
But there is going to be interest in making sure we have a more resilient system. And so how you build resiliency into the system, I think, is going to be the question that producers, processors, and others are going to be asking themselves over the next several months is, what does resiliency look like? What do we do if there is another black swan event like COVID-19 to make sure we're able to have some additional capacity or to be able to manage the animals in a way that doesn't have the same level of disruption? Those conversations are taking place today. Uh, You certainly see that in packing plants as they are putting up barriers, taking people's temperatures, working on health. But that conversation is going to continue for some time to come. Real quick, Charlie, where can they see your research on this? Bestfoodfacts.org. Bestfoodfacts.org. They can go to the infographic and see the journey from beef chicken to your plate. Bestfoodfacts.org. Great. Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Thanks, Charlie. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Before COVID-19, we were watching the spread of African swine fever from China to several other countries, Vietnam being one of them. And because of COVID-19, what it did to the swine industry in Vietnam, they are now taking some actions to that could open the door for some more U.S. pork to go into Vietnam. Let's talk about that with Aaron Bohr, economist with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Kind of give us uh, what's uh, an update on what's happening in Vietnam that could lead to this greater opportunity for U.S. pork producers. Right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Yes, lots of things happening. And as you said, you have the supply side. So Vietnam suffering from African swine fever and often cited decreases in pork output of somewhere around at least 20 percent. And then you add on top of that now the fact that Vietnam um, has seemingly tackled this COVID-19 coronavirus and open back up before much of the world. So some opportunities on the economic side. And then the Vietnam government realizing that their pig prices were still setting new records as recently as, you know, now in May. And so making moves to reduce the tariffs on imports to try to incentivize more meat coming into that country to try to stabilize things and make more pork available to the population there. So while this could help us sell more pork into the Vietnamese market, it probably opens the door for others like the European Union to do so as well. Yep, exactly. And there are lots of suppliers into Vietnam, as you could imagine. And so the tariff reduction brings that tariff on frozen pork from 15% down to 10%. And that does apply to everyone. Your CPTPP members like Canada are paying a lower rate of close to 9%, um, but that brings everyone, you know, on a similar level playing field. And Vietnam is interesting because we've seen new entrants, if you will. Uh, Russian pork is now widely available. Our staff on the ground in Vietnam tell us that you see it in the markets as well as on e-commerce. And Russia typically, you know, we've always thought of them as an import market, but they've been more aggressive in trying to export now that they've built up their industry and, mind you, through African swine fever as well. Uh, so they typically export to Hong Kong and also their neighbors, Ukraine and Belarus. But now Vietnam becoming a top destination for that Russian pork. 
And of course, you see Brazilian products. Um, as you mentioned, Europe has typically been the biggest supplier of pork into Vietnam. And then Canada, we've really seen them come on just this year as they've um, benefited from that CPTPP. So Canada's, for example, frozen pork into Vietnam in the first quarter was about 7,300 metric tons, up from essentially nothing last year. And for Europe, they're about 6,500 metric tons. They're actually shipping less this year. They've really shifted heavily direct to China. Um, and then for the U.S., we've had very strong growth, uh, about 3,100 metric tons. But that's up 263%. So you see a lot of muscle cuts specifically going into Vietnam, really like we haven't before. It's, we've always thought of the market as more of a variety meats market. Um, but a big shift in cuts going from, as you see, a range of suppliers. Brazil, nearly 5,000 tons up through April, also up 43%. We're talking with Aaron Borer with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. So that's interesting, Aaron. So we are selling more pork into Vietnam, but others are as well. A lot of competition there. It really stood out to me about Russia. I, I had not thought of them as a big pork exporter. Is this something we're going to see more of? Uh, it's definitely a goal for the Russian industry. As you can imagine, they they see and realize that they need exports to be profitable, uh, just as we do. So to get the most value out of every animal, they realize they need to export. And they, of course, see their neighbors there, in a sense. Um, in China, there's been talk for years of more trade between Russia and China. And that's yet to really materialize partially because of African swine fever. Um, but yes, the Vietnam and Hong Kong are really their big markets outside of you know, their neighborhood, their customs union. And so certainly I think Russia is a, a place to watch. You know, we talk about it on the grain side, of course, that Black Sea region. So they have the feed production, which makes them interesting as far as being more of a, a red meat competitor into the future. Something to watch for sure. All right. Now, what are we doing in Vietnam to promote our pork and to increase sales there? So we are active on the ground. We have staff in Vietnam. And so working, I mean, really all the way from the trade, of course, intensively, but also doing retail promotions. Um, Vietnam, it is interesting because they, they never really fully locked down with coronavirus, but they were fairly well locked down for about three weeks in April and then started coming out again ahead of most everybody. And that was in late April. Schools resumed mostly in May. And so as far as us being able to do like food service promotions, I think there's a good potential for us to be more aggressive in Vietnam because they've been relatively less affected. And again, coming out of lockdown earlier, the kind of caveat there is that Tourism, of course, is really important, and they're still sorting out of how, you know, how that can get going again, and still protecting their their status as nearly not. I won't say stamping out, but really containing the virus. Um, so yeah, USMEF is there promoting in retail, but also working in the trade, and um, again with our boots on the ground, doing what we can to link up suppliers, and of course. In these emerging markets, that is important, is linking up um, suppliers into that market as we start to get more players uh, really on both sides. Let's look short-term, long-term. Short-term, as you said, there's this opportunity now. But long-term, 
as they rebuild their pork industry, uh, what will the long-term prospects be for us selling into Vietnam? Yeah, I mean, it's really, I don't know, challenging to think about how a country like Vietnam rebuilds. I mean, China has more of a modern infrastructure, even though they have a long ways to go. They're arguably still ahead on that, you know, more modern pig production, where Vietnam is, was even more heavily backyard producers. And what we've always seen as a challenge, even for seeing, you know, more massive exports to Vietnam, is the relatively less developed cold chain. Um, so there is pretty good port infrastructure, but then where to go with the product because it's been you know, they've been heavily self-sufficient and really a fresh market. So uh, it is fascinating, but I guess I would say that the changes that are happening now to be able to accommodate larger uh, imports of frozen pork should be lasting. So as we shift these markets to more of a, a frozen and even thawed type of consumption and away from fresh, we do expect that to stick. I mean, you're going to see some fluctuation, obviously, as production does come back but some of this will be lasting and we'll also they will figure out how to utilize imported pork in processing and retailing and they'll they'll like it and that will stick and we've seen that through supply fluctuations in the past and so it's pretty exciting and we haven't really talked about beef but we're shipping more beef into the market as well and so that's been underway even before african swine fever and is kind of testament to um, what has been a booming food service. You know, Vietnam is known for, for great food and also at retail. So U.S. beef and Australian beef are the biggest at retail that you do find in the modern retailers in Vietnam. And, of course, with Australia's supplies tightening up, and they've been shipping still more beef and live cattle to Vietnam so far this year. But if that comes off as they rebuild their herd, you could see more opportunities there as well. So... Lots of dynamic short run, yes, but again, longer term, I mean, with a population of nearly 100 million and uh, strong economic growth, you know, a lot of economists talk about Southeast Asia and Vietnam specifically being growth centers for the future. Um, it's pretty exciting with a big, young population and growing money and or <laughs> increasing income and um, a penchant for, for good food. There's certainly a lasting market there and putting down these roots now will will pay dividends. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities with that country Vietnam and that region of the world for sure. We're working in there and as you said a lot of other countries are as well. Aaron, thank you for the update. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. Uh -huh, take care. Aaron Bohr, economist with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. All right, up next, we'll check back in with Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns & Associates. Take a look at the meat packing situation on the pork side. Uh, what are we seeing as far as uh, how far they've come as far as getting back up to production levels? Where are we right now? More positive cases among workers in some of these plants are starting to be reported. What does that mean moving forward? We'll get the very latest from Steve Meyer next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. 
Let's get an update on pork packing plants. Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns and Associates, joins us. Steve, good to talk with you again. We're hearing about more positive cases being found of COVID-19 in these uh, packing plants. What's the latest? Well, the latest is we've run into some problems the last uh, few days, especially at Storm Lake, Iowa. Now, we understand that that plant will be back up and running today. We don't know what rate it will be, but it had pushed our uh, the loss of that plant, at least in the short run, it pushed our idle capacity number back up above 18% yesterday, or day before yesterday. Um, uh, we dropped that a bit yesterday with some improvements at some other plants. But uh, it, the gains now are slow, Mike. Uh, we had rapid gains there for a week or so back in uh, in mid-May, uh, but uh, now the gains are going to be pretty slow coming. Uh, we still see a lot of problems generally at big double shift plants. Uh, you know, they have more people. Uh, obviously, they have more people involved. They have a shift change in the middle of the day sometime. They also have less cleaning time. And so they're having uh, difficulty getting back up there. Of the 28 plants that are on our list, uh, pardon me, 27 plants, I guess it is, that are on our list that have had trouble uh, during this last uh, two months, um, only nine of them are back up above 90%. So... Uh, we're making gains, but um, it's going to be, for a while, I'm afraid it's going to be one step forward and one step back on occasion. Yeah, that's what it feels like. And and you get one plant up, back up and going closer to where it was, uh, but then something happens at another plant. It kind of pulls the overall numbers down. It's, it seems to be a moving target right now. It certainly is. I mean, and, and we understand that. I mean, it's just... Uh, you know, uh, it's it's a difficult situation that many of these plants are in. They're dealing, uh, in many cases, with unknowns that they've never dealt with before. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, and within companies, you certainly learn things. I mean, you know, they certainly learn things. I I don't know, uh, I don't know that there's much sharing of what uh, they learn between companies. I'm not sure they talk to each other. In general, our packing companies don't talk to each other because of antitrust uh, considerations. But still, um, you know, we're just going to have to make slow progress here. And it's the it's the law of diminishing marginal returns. You know, you get the first the biggest kick for the first in, uh, uh, assets that you put against something, and and we're down the road a little bit on that at this point. But uh, we certainly need to still make improvements. We still got, you know. Um, uh, a, a good chunk, 80-some thousand head per day of capacity idled out there, and we needed all of that. Uh, we were going to need all that to handle the hogs that are out there. This week, uh, we're going to run a big Saturday, and we're still not going to get uh, all the hogs that were available uh, under normal circumstances slaughtered this week. So uh, by my calculations, we're still backing them up. Yeah, let's talk about that. We're talking with Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns and Associates. Where are we as far as uh, backlog? Well, we think we're about 2.4 million, uh, pushing you know pushing that number at least uh, that are out there uh, that are waiting to find a spot. Uh, producers have put those animals on maintenance holding diets and are doing a good job of that. But uh, the problem is, I can't find a place this summer where our actual slaughter is going to be below the new lower capacity number enough to really make an inroad into that backlog. Uh, we think we've euthanized, you know, maybe a half million hogs, uh, market hogs, and 
probably a little more of that of young pigs uh, since April or May. Now, those obviously don't affect slaughter until the fall, um, but um, there's a lot of holding on in hope of getting hogs moved that uh, I can't find a way that that's going to be fulfilled. So I think we're going to have to euthanize some more animals. Now, it's possible that we have some highly stocked barns, you know, double and triple stocked with pigs a few weeks ago, uh, that those animals will need a barn here and we're holding pigs and it's possible that the younger pigs will get euthanized uh, to uh, relieve that crowding. But um, I just can't make the numbers work without eliminating some of these animals. And I, I really hate to come to that conclusion. And I know producers are holding on trying to not do that. Um, but if you don't have a packing plant that you can certainly get a spot for your hogs, uh, I think you're in. You're going to have a tough time getting them all in. So when I go over those numbers again, you think uh, the backlog is about 2.4 million head of hogs, and we have probably euthanized about a half a million head of market hogs. Is that right? That's what I think. That's what we think. But if you add up, uh, if you add up our forecast slaughter out of the March hogs and pigeon report, and take the difference in that with actual slaughter, the number is bumping three million. Uh, and so we know we've eliminated some of those animals. We don't know how many, but right now I've got 500 to 600,000 in my calculations. All right. So, Steve, when you're looking at those kind of numbers and try it's and it's 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 moving figure here about what plants are going to be able to do, because we don't know about these setbacks that we've talked about. But. Mm-hmm. The pace we're on now, how long does it take to work through 2.4 million head of hogs uh, backlogged? I mean, that, that's going to take a long time, well, isn't it? At, at the pace we're on now, you're not going to because you're still not slaughtering all the current ones. I mean, you're, you haven't stopped digging. You're not catching up. Yeah. yeah, so we've got to get actual slaughter up above 2.4 million uh, to start eating into that at all. That's that's the point that, uh, you know, I've... I've been trying to make for some time is if we have any problems with capacity, if its capacity is down here, you know, 15%, we can make some of that up on Saturday. But, you know, to get to where we're going to be this week, we're going to have to slaughter more than 300,000 on Saturday. And my, my, one of the problems here is I don't think the industry can run at 300,000 plus every Saturday. I think the labor situation is still too tenuous uh, to, to put that much, that much burden on the labor supply. So, um, that's where the numbers don't work. And, you know, we've had pretty good demand so far that has kept things going. And in fact, you know, in the last few weeks when we had significant reductions in slaughter, we ran the cutout value uh, very high, well over $100, uh, because demand at the retail had remained strong. Well, we're kind of catching up with that. So right now we need wholesale demand to be growing at a pace that will take this larger and larger uh, production from more packing capacity coming online. And it isn't keeping up at the moment. We've had some pressure on, uh, on, uh, on the cutout value this week, and we're going to have probably a little more pressure on that. And now we have some rumblings between the U.S. and China, and China has been rumbling about not buying pork. Um, I don't think they can do that. I think they have to buy pork from us, but uh, they can certainly play their cards to try to buy it at better terms uh, if they want to. So. Uh, the demand side is getting a little iffy, a little soft on us again here at this moment. This thing has just been a wild pendulum back and forth and back and forth. And, um, you know, uh, I guess 
I guess if it goes back and forth enough times, I ought to be able to predict what it's going to do next, but I haven't got there yet. Hmm. Do we have any more plants coming online anytime soon? Yeah, we have one. Uh, it's a smaller plant, uh, the, the converted cow plant at Laverne, Minnesota, Iowa Premium Pork. That should come online. Uh, the last I heard was maybe this week or next. Uh, and ramp up, but only it's got a capacity of 2,250 head or something like that. I mean, it's not a big plant. So that is some added capacity. Uh, we have one plant that could put on a second shift. That'd be the, the Prestige plant in Iowa if they could find the labor for that, but I don't think that's uh, an easy task by any stretch. Uh, the Coldwater Michigan plant would have to add some cooler space and do some physical remodeling. So they would be at least a year down the line before they would have a double shift. And then finally, the Holstone Foods plant up in Nebraska, the old uh, Hormel plant that was bought by uh, producers last year, they're in the process of doing remodeling, but they won't have their second shift and probably until early 2022. So, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of cavalry coming to help the situation out, but uh, not very much in the immediate future. And we've heard from the local meat lockers, they're booked up for months ahead. They're, they're at capacity now. Yeah, they are. They are. In fact, we've had, we've had inquiries, uh, I know the Port Board has, from people that are interested in putting in meat locker plants uh, about design and those kind of things. So that'd be good, but that, even that will take a while. So, um, you know, it's, you know we're, we're kind of utilizing all the resources we have to get through these animals and and, uh, you know, once you get down to the local meat locker plant, they're good folks and they do a great job, but they won't make a dent in 2.4 million hogs. No, that's just such a, a staggering, staggeringly large number to try to work yeah. through. And, and as you as you often remind us, hey, there are more coming, right? I mean, you, you can put you idle some hogs, but you got more coming. So it's a you, you only have so much space. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, it's and and uh, you only have so much space and you only have so many people to work in the plants. Okay, and yeah. uh, of course that labor shortage has been what's really driven this situation. And the companies have got to, you know, they've got to get used to the new operating and and they all they all care about their health of their workers. I mean, I don't think that you know some people trying to portray them as not caring. I I think they care, but uh, just like all the rest of us. This is a new deal. They don't know exactly how to do this, and they're uh, trying to implement the CDC guidelines the best they can and keep output uh, as high as they can within those guidelines. Uh, but they're constraints, and if you put constraints in any system, uh, there's going to be uh, there's going to be some limitation on what it can do. Yeah, very difficult situation for sure. Steve, thanks for the update. It is. Mike, good to talk to you. Have a good week. Take care. Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns and Associates. Up next, we'll get a report on the Kansas wheat crop and how planting is going and how crops look in Ohio. That's next here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Let's check crop conditions in Kansas and Ohio. We'll start in Kansas. Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat. Justin, good to talk with you again. What's the wheat crop hey, look good like? Good to visit with you. Oh, it's uh, 
really starting to ripen fast. You know, we've got uh, the weather's really opening up. Uh, harvest is progressing through uh, Texas and into central Oklahoma today uh, on that northern border of Oklahoma, southern border of Kansas. That crop's really ripening fast, and uh, farmers are probably looking at maybe trying to do some test cutting uh, into this weekend. So it's coming quick, Mike. Tell us about the recovery from that cold snap. Well, it's really been been pretty amazing when you think about, you know, April 13th through April 17th, we had below freezing temperatures that really got the market's attention. And farmers were out looking in fields, and a lot of those primary tillers, uh, you know, wheat that was jointed and in the boot stage, farmers got out and looked in that central corridor, kind of north of Wichita, up through Salina, over to Dodge City, kind of in the southwest part of Kansas. You know, you could really see right the immediate impact from that freeze. A lot of those primary tillers had been lost. Um, so at that time, there was uh, a lot of concern about what the yield was going to be. If you did a yield calculation on those fields, it was probably about a 20-bushel estimate at that time. Uh, but since that time in May, we had a really wet May, cool temperatures in, the, in that central corridor, and the crop really responded. Uh, I think some of those fields that would have been estimated about 20 bushels back in April, uh, here now when farmers are looking at it, getting prepared for harvest, they, they think they might have a chance at a 50 or 60 bushel wheat crop. So it'll be it'll be interesting. There's only one way to tell <clears throat> is by running the combine through it, but uh, in that central part, it looks like it's responded well. Unfortunately, in the western districts of, of Kansas and then in eastern Colorado and the Panhandle, Oklahoma, that and those drought areas where they didn't get that moisture re- to recover from that freeze, uh, that that's that's where there we're uh, going to see some pretty disappointing yields, unfortunately. So as you get ready for wheat harvest in Kansas, still wrapping up planting of crops in Ohio. Cy Prettyman joins us now. He farms north of Columbus. And Cy, you tell me you're you're still wrapping up bean planting. Yeah, we uh, finally got uh, corn finished up earlier in the week, and uh, I'm trying to wrap up beans. Probably got another day, day and a half here, then we'll have the beans in the ground. Um, a lot of activity going on right now. Guys trying to finish up. Some guys are done. Some guys done a little replanting after the big rains we had there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but the crops that are up, uh, they're looking good. And hopefully uh, the weather will treat us, treat us well here for the rest of the summer. So here we are, first of part of June. How does that compare to where you were a year ago? Last year at this time, I had uh, just a couple hundred acres of corn in the ground. I had no beans in the ground yet. So uh, and we were very wet. And uh, if you recall, when we talked last year, I didn't get started started on beans. I planted a day there around June 8th or 9th, and then uh, then it was the 24th of June before we got back in and finished up our beans and ended up taking about a third of our acres as prevented plant last year. So much better conditions this year. So you have good stands for the most part, but you did have to do some replanting in your area. Yep, seen a few guys out here in the last couple of days hitting some replants. I've probably got some myself that I need to go back in here when I get get this round of, first round of beans done and uh, just some bounded out spots from those heavy rains that came through there. Uh, I think you guys caught some of that out that way and, and we caught it there a couple of weeks ago. We had in across Ohio anywhere from three to five inches over those couple of days that that rain moved through. I just sat here and got blocked uh, by the, the tropical storm out on the east coast. 
So you wish you were probably uh, completely done, but when you think of a year ago, you feel like you're way ahead of schedule. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, uh, you know, this isn't totally unusual to be wrapping up here the first couple of days of June on some, on beans, but, uh, you know, we like to be done by Memorial Day, and but it didn't work out that way this year, so we're, we'll keep tr- uh, plugging away here, and uh, we'll get it wrapped up here hopefully maybe tomorrow or depends on how much rain we get today. There's supposed to be a flood coming through today, so we'll see. All right. And, Justin, back to you in Kansas. So you think uh, combines are pretty close to rolling, huh? Well, we've really had high temperatures, and the wind's really been blowing, drying down the wheat crop. It's uh, really ripening and advancing pretty fast. You know, as, as you're seeing per- harvest progress uh, through uh, central Oklahoma today, uh, as everything's starting to turn pretty quick in south-central Kansas, that there's a there's a good shot that there'll be somebody that does a – gets out and does a test cutting maybe the end of this weekend, Mike. When it happens, it happens quick, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly does. And uh, uh, this is the kind of weather that uh, is good and conducive for the wheat crop to ripen down. You know, if it would have stayed cool and uh, a little bit more moisture, might have been able to add a few more bushels here at the tail end. But uh, when uh, when crops are ready to go and uh, getting temperatures like this, it's it is gonna. It is gonna happen fast. So next time we talk, we'll talk some harvest numbers. Yeah, looking forward to that. You know, the expectation uh, is going to be interesting to see what is happening with that freeze. Now, you were hearing reports out of Texas where combines are getting out in fields that look like it's going to be 60 or 80 bushel wheat, but it's really only yielding about 30 or 40 bushels because the heads just weren't there because of the impact of freeze. So. Uh, it'll it'll be real interesting to see if we see that kind of impact in central Kansas and then, of course, that drought areas in the Panhandle and eastern Colorado and western Kansas, unfortunately, are going to be some disappointing yields. Mm-hmm. And, Cy, in Ohio, you'll be uh, soon turning your attention, once you get that planting done, probably to spraying and some of that. Hopefully the weather will cooperate for you there. Yeah, I've seen a lot of, a lot of guys getting out, uh, getting that first round of spray on some of the emerged crops and uh, – uh, I've got some of the early corn that we got planted. I'm, I'll probably jump in and start side dressing some nitrogen on it here in the next week. So, yeah, there'll be a lot of activity going on, uh, getting things getting things ready to go. Yep, busy time. Our thanks to Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat, and Cy Prettyman, Ohio farmer. Guys, thanks a lot. Take care. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. All right. Take care, guys. Tomorrow, we're going to talk markets with Arlen Suderman, and we're going to get the latest Purdue CME Ag Economy Barometer numbers from Michael Langemeyer at Purdue University. So hope you'll join us right here on AOA. Stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, everyone.